Uh, I was born in a small town called Masjid Suleiman in southern Iran. I born in Syria. I was born in Hamburg, Germany. I was born in Kong. I was born in Tanzania in a refugee camp. I was born in Singapore. Guatemala. I'm from Ireland. I was born in Thailand refugee. I was born in Mumbai. I was born in Vientiane. I was born in England. I was born in Costa Rica. Welcome to Many Roads to Here bringing the voices of immigrants, refugees, and asylum seekers to a national conversation about migration and identity. I'm your host, Caitlin Dwyer. Chanpon Sinlipasai was born in Laos during a time of chaotic warfare in the region. Her family eventually escaped to the U.S. as refugees and settled in Stockton, California. Chanpon never forgot her experiences adjusting to life in the U.S. and has become a champion for the rights of immigrants and refugees. Natalia Lopez has her story, which begins in the late 1970s near the Lao border in northern Thailand. We were a very tight niche. Everyone lived in villages, and all the villages are self-sufficient. They all support each other. So my dad is Lahu. He's from the Lu tribe. But my mom's family, which are Vientiane, they lived in Vientiane, but also the neighboring ta- tribes. And so there was a lot of travel by foot to meet other family members because women usually are married off to their husbands and they're supposed to be the caretakers, the family. And so that's how family congregated. Shinpon was born just as the Laotian Civil War, a conflict between the Lao government and communist defectors, was ending. In reality, the conflict in Laos was a proxy for the conflict between the United States and the Soviet Union. It was part of a larger war of influence that also involved the Vietnamese and Cambodian civil wars. Years later, the region was still rocked by the aftermath of war. Many made the decision to try and escape, including the family of then four-year-old Champon. A lot of my family lost their lives during the war. My dad fought in the military alongside with the U.S. And for many of the Lao people, they were divided. They were not always with the side of the U.S. So they were recruited by other countries to fight the war. So sometimes you have the same tribes and family members fighting on different sides. My uncle and my dad would take us and try to sneak out in the middle of the night. And it was multiple attempts. We were not successful the first time. I remember us hiding I don't remember much of it, but I remember being carried on my mom's back and my mom telling me not to cry. And it was in the middle of the night. We were running. My mom was barefoot. I could just, I can see her and my feeling of being attached to her back. Me and my little brother being told not to make a sound and just running. And then I remember us going to my grandparents, my dad's side, and just being very quiet. And then we fled again to the boat. And the boat, All I remember is gunfire, just gunfire being shot at boats because all the boats were leaving at the same time trying to escape. And all you see is just red flashes. I was approximately four or five. But those memories, they're embedded. Like those, that scene, I used to think it was just a dream. But as I got older, my dad's like, yeah, that's exactly what happened. After numerous attempts, Champone and her family successfully escaped to a refugee camp in Vietnam. With the help from American military contacts, Champone's father was able to send himself and his family to Stockton, 
a city in California's Central Valley, only one year later. My dad was pretty active in the military, and so he knew the higher-ups and the generals. And we were on a fast track. I don't know how we got fast track, but we got fast track. We were put on a plane, and remember, the only planes we've ever seen were the ones dropping bombs every three seconds, dropping bombs in our country. We were placed on airplanes with very little instruction on where we were going, who we were meeting. They said, you're going to meet your sponsor. What does the sponsor mean? What do they look like? We're, all these connection flights, right? Giving little tassels in our neck and put in seats. And we were told to eat these food. And my mom would not let us eat because she said it's poison. Because we are now on a military flight. That's what she called it, a military flight coming to the U.S. And we stopped in Los Angeles first. When we got off, we didn't know where to go. We were lost. My dad didn't speak English. We just had papers. And we had the little bag, you know, the white bag with the United Nations logo on it, dressed as nice as we could as refugees, not knowing to go. We were lost. We missed our flight to meet our family in California because that's where we were supposed to get a connection flight to Stockton to be here to meet the sponsors. But my, our sponsor um, was a pastor, and he got shipped off in a mission, but no one told us nor the refugee resettlement program. So when we landed, we literally had no one. And so they were trying to find family members that they can link us to. And it was the kindness of a total strange Filipino woman who gave us information and tried to help us based on what was hanging on our necks. Arriving in Stockton, a city known for housing diverse immigrant and migrant worker groups, was initially jarring for Champone and her family. They had little to no resources to help adapt to the realities of their new life. Over time, however, they were able to carve out a unique place for themselves within the diverse neighborhoods of their new community. They had no place for my family because our sponsor left. The house that we were supposed to move in to live with our sponsor, he was now in Africa, is what we were told. And so we moved in with my uncle, who was in Stockton, in his one-bedroom apartment. There was 20-plus of us. And literally all sleeping, like, on the floor, like this, just in a line. And back then, when we were resettled in 1980, Stockton was all farmland. I went to work and pick fruit with my parents. So I was picking cucumbers, watermelon, corn, everything that was growing alongside with my parents. And that was normal. And then we would work until the sun came up. It was hot. And then we would go to school. And then you get your second job. And then you would have your night job. And then you sleep for a little bit and you come back to the same schedule. So our Section 8 housing was essentially farm workers. And so it was our, all of our Mexicans, all of us, and then what we were our Indian population. It was like the three generations, like Southeast Asians everywhere. So it became, it felt safe because we were all cooking in the front yard, sharing food. We couldn't speak the same language, but people would share food and people were kind. Like that generation of knowing that, this situation's very crappy for all of us, right? Like every family has multiple families living in the same apartment complex together. They were putting us all in situations where we were trying to survive. And so it was, it was a happy time. I, I look back at it, even though it was traumatic, those times were not probably not for my parents, but for me, very carefree because we were learning how to integrate ourselves. And it was a time where it's pivotal for my work as an adult now being in community in a way where 
we were all human beings. There was no ranking. Regardless of the color of our skin, the language that we spoke, we were all together trying to survive as a family, as a one giant unit on this farm. Despite many challenges, life in the U.S. also meant new opportunities for Champone, including the chance to go to school. However, it wasn't until her senior year of high school that Champone was fully able to understand how transformative this opportunity truly could be. I was blessed because I pushed. I was strong enough because of my grandmother, who was my matriarch, my great-grandmother, who I grew up a lot with because my parents were working. They always taught me I could do whatever I want. They said, if you want to study, because we weren't given the opportunity to study in Laos, you should study. But you have to put your heart in it. Like my grandmother always said, you can't do everything. Like, don't just half it. If you're going to do it, really do it. And it wasn't until my senior year, I almost flunked out of high school. Because I was like, why is this? Why are we going to school? I'm going to be married off. And I got to, I have to go have babies and be somebody's wife. So after my senior year, and I still remember Miss Bates. She's my favorite teacher, and I wish I could find her to thank her. She changed my life. So I had to work starting at age 14 to help my parents make ends meet, right? But I was like, I don't want to be making this much money the rest of my life. This is hard manual work. I was like, I got to do better. And I always love reading, but I'm not a good reader, right? English is my second language. It takes me a lot longer to read than most people. And so... I fell in love with reading. And Miss Bates is like, I see you. That's what she used to tell me. She's like, I see you. I, I know you're hanging around with all these friends, but you're really smart. Your GPA does not reflect that you're smart, but you're smart. And she's like, I want you to read this book. So she gave me a book to read, and I fell in love. It was, it was John Steinbeck. And so uh, Mice and Men. And then she kept giving me books, and I kept reading them. And I was like, you know what? I actually really enjoy reading. She's like, what do you think about English? I go, I can't, I can't do English. English is my second language. I can't even speak proper English now. And she's like, you, you limit yourself. And she's like, Chapon, you're not going to graduate. She's like, you're not going to graduate. And if your goal is to help your family get better and get out of this poverty, you need to continue your education. And so she's like, I want you to enroll in junior college. I want you to look at junior college. And she had faith in me. And I was like, Miss Bates, you're crazy. Like, I've, I'm barely, like, getting by. I'm like, I, I got to leave school now. I got to go find a job. I'm, I was working at the golf range. And at 16, I started working at a company as a receptionist. So I had two jobs and was going to school. And I was like, this is not prime priority. Prime priority is hanging out with my friends. She's like, you got to get your priorities straight. And so she helped me. She actually took the packet and helped me look through De Anza College. With the help of Miss Bates, Champone attended and excelled at Danza Community College, making her the first in her family to ever attend college. After two years, Champone transferred to Santa Clara University. And so Santa Clara University is an amazing school. And I was, we, my friends were diplomats, sons and daughters of CEOs, famous singers. Like they were elites. And here's me. And some of my other friends who were like, how the hell did we get here, right? Like, we're, we came from a farm worker family. Like, this is crazy. So I studied linguists, and I studied African-American Renaissance. 
I wanted to study the suffrage movement on how we became who we are. How did I get here? Because I know I didn't get here without the foundations of our Native people as well as our African slaves and all those who fought for us. So I studied English, but my English focus was on essentially the Renaissance, um, both the Harlem Renaissance and the women's movement and our, our slaves. And my I dealt, and then my third year, because why not, I decided to be a double dual degree and did English and philosophy. I had a very high GPA. I Once I started studying, it was not hard. I was, studying wasn't hard. I just didn't have the opportunity. And I think that's where education is so important. Kids are distracted by so many things, right? That doesn't give them the opportunity to fully concentrate. When I had to focus on me and think of it as to better myself is to better my family, to better my community, then it became a game changer. I was the first in my family. I was the first ever, and I stumbled. I stumbled and made horrible mistakes, but I had kind people who held my hand through the way. I've always wanted to do something with law. California laws was very different back then. I just felt an injustice in our social order. So in coming to America, I had to be my parents' interpreter. I had to be their social worker. I had to be their form fillers. I had to be their medical doctor diagnosis over the phone. So I was in that, back then, being eight, learning how to speak English, even with my broken English, I was taken to immigration. I was taken to the interviews. I was taken to social security. Watching as an eight-year-old, First of all, how people treat your family because they don't speak English always stayed with me, always dumbfounded me. Second, how our legal system, nothing was ever interpreted. Systems of empowerment didn't empower people who was not deemed valuable to society. And that for me was fundamentally why I wanted to study. I wanted to study our systems of power. It's just not fair. And fairness is so fundamental for our survivors and for our community who has experienced so much trauma and rejection from their home country. Entering the workforce, Champone relied on support from friends and family. But the help didn't end there. Champone was pleasantly surprised to receive encouragement and support for her law school ambitions from her co-workers at Rambus, a tech research and development company where she worked her second job. So I, I worked two jobs and went to school. I put myself through school. I was a receptionist at another company, and then I got a job at Rambus. When I was interviewed, they asked me what I wanted to do. And I said, I actually want to get a JD. I want to study so I could become a lawyer to help fight for social justice issues. And the vice president at that time, the vice president the CEO, had children my age, and they just connected with me. They're like, we're going to give you stock options, but you work for us, and you just promise to work for us until you get your JD. And I was like, are you serious? And they're like, we believe in you. Like, the way you're talking right now, we believe you. And here's this lonely little refugee girl who are like, you know, I don't know if I believe myself right now as I'm, like, speaking these words. But they saw me for who I was that moment. Their little glimpse of faith when I held them in such high esteem, I think gave me the confidence to excel in my studies. Champone eventually applied to and was accepted at Lewis and Clark Law School in Portland, Oregon. 
I got a scholarship my first year. It was the school that, and money was always taken a factor. And it was the second um, school ranked in the nation for public interest law. And I just loved it. I just loved the campus. I studied public interest law. I wanted to take all these classes to give back to the community. So uh, my first year, it's all it's all planned for you, your first year of programs. But when I got to choose, I chose things that were very unique to the community, like immigration law. In law school, Champone was heavily involved with organizations that worked to advocate for immigrant rights, including the Immigrant and Refugee Community Organization and Catholic Charities. Her personal experiences helped her empathize with her clients, as well as understand the legal needs of the surrounding communities. I started doing restraining orders, traffic, and then it spe- specialized into trafficking cases. And that's how I got to Catholic Charities. They were creating their own trafficking program. They had an attorney already. And I didn't have my, law, my, my JD yet, but I started filing cases for families. We were the first, we built the first anti-trafficking program in the state where we brought in, that's why my story is so unique because the work was such a niche. Many of our brown foreign populations were being physically trafficked. Children were being sold. Parents were selling their kids. Things were happening on a global network, but nobody saw it. When you're seen in community, for the community, it changes the trust relationship of what you can do. After law school, Champone started her own law firm with a continued focus on protecting the rights of immigrants and refugees. She founded Refugee Adjustment Day, an annual event in Portland where volunteer lawyers assist refugees with the complicated paperwork to apply for permanent residency. I want to start why I started the Refugee Adjustment Program. We had 35 Burmese people come the first year that I started at like 2002 or three. We had the first wave. It was a huge wave. But they couldn't find lawyers to take on their cases because lawyers wanted to charge 500 bucks. And refugees do not make that much money. And you got to remember that if a family of 10, you can never afford it. So that's why the Refugee Adjustment Day program started, which started with 35 Burmese. Then it became priority deportation cases. And then we made it a mass free-for-all legal services After several years of legal advocacy work for the immigrant community, Champone took a big next step in her career path to become a state judge. The question I always get was, why a state judge and not a federal judge? I've always wanted to serve, and the way that I wanted to serve was our community at the most critical time. At times, I determined someone's innocent or guilt based on the evidence presented before me, and I wanted to help change a system from within that didn't have the lens of a refugee experience of walking through that door, or someone who is trauma-bound, or why a rape victim doesn't want to talk at this moment about why she was raped, or after she's made the report to the police, but also to social worker, but also to FBI. Why are we re-traumatizing? I wanted us to rehandle the way that we approach our legal system from a very holistic level, from the moment of inception of anybody through the, the criminal justice system to their very last day, to the verdict. And in order to do that, I can't be a lawyer. It's hard for people to grasp that you're deportable. You're still limited on your constitutional rights until the day you are sworn in as a citizen. That is so fundamental. And so I'm at this level for a reason. 
When you're in community, you're embraced for your uniqueness, but what you bring. But then it's you drive to San Francisco or outside Sacramento, and you realize that you're a minority, very clearly. And growing up, and where we talk about othering, it's so important when I say that we all have to evaluate the tools and the systems that we create with the lens of the most vulnerable, right? Those who can't speak the language, those who can't access language, but those who are brand new to this country, like how would they navigate it? How would they access it? It's so important because you just, everybody takes it for granted and that experience gets lost because it's so easy to just see it from a privileged lens. And I'm privileged now. I mean, my 40 years here, I was given opportunities that were not, that for most refugees would unfathomable. I'm the only one in my family that has a JD, that has a law degree. And there's very few in terms of a handful that were given successes. The majority had a hard life. And those were challenges because if any one of those moments, whether it was in a gang fight, I mean, if I got locked up, wrong place, wrong time, I wouldn't be sitting here. I'm still a baby judge. I always tell people, I go, I'm just crawling, right? This system of government, our U.S. system, is so complex. And what I really want to continue doing is learning. I, I want to learn how to better serve our community in different ways. Many Roads to Here is a production of The Immigrant Story. This episode was produced by Natalia Lopez, with audio editing and post-production by Greg Palmer. The original interview was conducted by our illustrious executive producer, Sankai Raman, in March of 2022. Thank you to St. Andrew Lutheran Church in Beaverton, Oregon, for the use of their space to record this interview. And thank you to the Oregon Cultural Trust, whose generous contribution made this episode possible. For more stories, visit theimmigrantstory.org backslash many roads. Listen live at Portland Radio Project or stream us wherever you get your podcasts.